We continue in our Advent studies. We are staying in this very famous passage of Isaiah, chapter 9. We're looking at verse 6 and 7 as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, as we prepare our hearts for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the most famous prophetic passages about the very character of the Messiah, all of which are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Here in Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Advent is a time that announces this new government, this new hope that begins because of the birth of a child. This passage from Isaiah is a, a birth announcement delivered 700 years before Jesus' birth. Isaiah gives the people this announcement to give hope in extremely dark times. He introduces the Messiah by sharing with us, revealing to us, the character of the Messiah through these amazing names. These names are more than just titles. They're revelations of Messiah's character. They're also very revealing about the work that he will do on our behalf. Each one of them is amazing in and of itself. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. This word wonderful means incomprehensible, amazing, extraordinary. He's not talking about a counselor like we think of today who helps us with our our problems and so it's not that he's saying that he's a terrific counselor rather uh, one of the Bible translations actually translates the name as he's an extraordinary strategist the idea here is of a general or a king who has the winning military strategy Jesus understood the pandemic that sin created for all mankind and he has this incredible strategy it's the only strategy that can save us and it's the strategy needed in order to save us jesus meets us right in the darkest of times he meets us in this pandemic that we are going through right now and he has a strategy for it so that we can face it in these days jesus is also called and the, being the messiah he is mighty god the Hebrew word here, mighty, means hero, means our champion. He's the mighty warrior who protects his people. He doesn't just have a strategy to save us. He actually has the spiritual, emotional, physical strength to carry out this plan all the way to its fulfillment and its completion. Sometimes what I, I like to think of, and it's a, a theological description, but to talk about the finished work of Christ. That we are people who believe in a finished work, a completed work, a completed plan. 
that our faith doesn't make us saved. Our faith looks back on what Jesus has done and who he is. He is the one who has saved us. And our faith embraces that. It doesn't create that reality. We embrace the historical reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we trust in, we rely in what he was doing for us on the cross, in the resurrection. What he did for us in his incarnation. You see, Jesus is the very might of God. He's the strength of God. Um, Tim Keller writes on this, and uh, he's actually, I think in many ways, taking a, a page from John Stott as well. The idea is that in the biblical times, when people actually saw or heard Jesus, they never could react to him in a mild way, nor were they indifferent towards him. Once they realized what he was claiming about himself, they were either scared of him or they were furious with him or they knelt before him and worshipped him. They knew his claim that he wasn't just sent from God, but that he was God himself. Nobody simply liked him. Nobody ever said, oh, he's so inspiring. He wants me to live, makes me want to live a better life. You see, this baby that was born in the manger, the Bible says, Jesus said, that he is the mighty God. And if he is who he says he is, which he is, then the only true response is to serve him completely. Jesus is, as Isaiah says, says here, he's the everlasting father. This one who has come with this plan, who has fulfilled this plan, is God himself. See, when you receive Jesus, you get the fullness of God. You get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be born again is, is to be indwelt by the Spirit of God in your spirit, a, a union with His Spirit. This brings you into an intimate relationship. You're no longer just a creation of God. You're no longer simply a human being. Now you are a child an intimate relationship with the Father. And the, and the beauty for me of the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer is that the fullness of God indwells us. This is an amazing reality. Jesus himself is the creator of all and therefore is our Father in the sense of being the creator. He's the Father of all creation. He is the Son of God, carrying out the very plans and executing the plans of the Father in our lives. He is fully human, and He is fully God. There is mystery in the Incarnation. There is mystery in this Advent. In some ways, there is no way we can fully understand an infinite God, but yet He has revealed Himself in the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that we can experience intimacy and relationship with God. I, I always love this title, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. It, you know, the word shalom here is a very rich and meaningful word. 
it, it, it really has to do with more than just a, a, a sort of cessation of stress or the end of difficulties. It's more the idea of, of all the resources are available in his presence, with him present in your life. All the resources are available for you to experience fullness. In many ways, the shalom is a, it's a full economic, a full emotional, a full spiritual flourishing in the life of the believer. I mean, the promises that are made that the Messiah will fulfill. Jesus is the one who restores and he brings about peace. He brings an end to injustice. His more, he is more about restoration than he is about conquering. He has accomplished everything, every resource, everything that you need in order to have a life of flourishing. That's what the peace of God is in your life. Jesus is the one who proclaims that peace over your life. He imparts that peace to your life. And he's the one that has committed himself to maintaining that peace. One of the ways of looking at the word shalom is that in the Hebrew it meant to tie up loose ends together so that everything becomes whole. This is, in so so many ways, it's so important we get this. I, I remember growing up in a very religious tradition, growing up in a very uh, moralistic and at times very legalistic uh, Christian tradition. And the idea of godliness sometimes seems so far from any reality. And godliness, in a lot of ways, meant a life of somberness, a life without enjoyment. But when you know what the shalom of God is, and you understand that Jesus is the one who rules in our hearts, that, he, that Prince isn't like something from Disney. It's one who has authority, one who has power over a realm and his realm is the peace in your life where he takes everything and makes it whole understand godliness is really wholeness holiness is wholeness so here here is his title the prince of peace but this is also his activity to take the loose ends in our life and to make them whole he's at work right now taking all these loose ends, all the things we don't understand, all the things that seem out of our control, and he integrates them into wholeness. It's not a namby-pamby kind of weak and impotent peace. Not a resignation. It's not, you know, a giving up. But rather, it is the wholeness that you long for. And it's what we need so much in this life. But I want to I bring these titles together and really look more deeply at this idea of wonderful counselor. Uh, what this basically has to do with is this. The counselor aspect is really speaking of the wisdom of God. And then the wonderful part is the experience, an emotional, involuntary experience of wonder. I mean, in some ways, there's, there's almost nothing like wonder. To see something and, and involuntarily react 
enjoy, to involuntarily, instinctively react with enjoyment is what wonder really means. And so, in, in, in a way, we could sum up the meaning of Christmas in that Christmas is the wisdom of God, our counselor, the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God coming into our dark and broken lives, our dark and broken world, and replacing that darkness and that brokenness with a sense of wonder. So Jesus is a counselor like no, no, no other. But even, even an earthly counselor in many ways is a source of wisdom. He's a person we go to in order to understand, in order to make sense of all these loose ends in our life. And so Jesus is definitely a counselor. He's a source of wisdom. But, but there's so much more here because as the mighty God, it's not like a peer counseling us. It's not even like a, a, a qualified counselor counseling us. This is the mighty God who knows all the things that God knows, who knows the end of your life from the beginning. He's not just a source of wisdom. Being the mighty God, he is the ultimate source of wisdom for your life. As you rely upon, as you begin to surrender to and yield to the presence of Christ and the, the peace of Christ, this tying up of the loose ends and making you whole, then this really is the one who comes into your life in such a way as ultimate wisdom. Well, this wonderful counselor, Isaiah is saying, and we see from the Christmas story, is that he comes into a world that is dark. He, he comes into a world as the wisdom of God. So he's really coming into a world that doesn't have the wisdom to heal itself. Coming into a life that doesn't have the wisdom to heal itself. That there are problems that cannot be fixed with worldly wisdom. It's interesting that people tend, even people who... Uh, aren't interested in Easter, the resurrection, who aren't interested that much in Good Friday and the crucifixion, they embrace, for some reason, this whole idea of the spirit of Christmas. Um, but when they embrace it, they're embracing it as if it's very affirming, as if it affirms humanity, not recognizing. You see, if we need a counselor, if we need a wisdom from God, it means it means that the world's wisdom has failed. And, and, and in a very practical way here, I have not seen a person really become a Christian, get truly born again, who didn't come to the place where they realized that their own wisdom had failed. And, and even as people are Christians and they're trying to live their Christian life and they're trying to live up to what they feel like Christians ought to be, I've seldom seen people who truly um, embrace their vulnerability, embrace their brokenness, you know, without realizing that their own wisdom had failed. And, 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 it's, and it's in those moments, kind of those dark nights of the soul or those 
dead ends that you come to, it's in those moments, even as a Christian, that we recognize that our own wisdom is not sufficient, and that's when we allow and we really surrender and yield to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In some, some ways, and a, a deep experience, a subsequent experience to even your conversion has to take place. That you come to the place you realize, even though I, I've been saved, even though I've had this amazing conversion experience, I cannot live the life of wholeness without embracing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So you think about it, Christmas in some ways is an affront to worldly wisdom. It says that the world's wisdom has failed. Now, I'm a parent, and I, I have two children who are both grown. And they are four years apart. My son is the oldest, my daughter the youngest. And they were, they were always very good children in so many ways, but they, you put two, two children together in a room and either, you know, either they don't share well or they're not uh, giving each other space or whatever it is, but you, you, know, you hear them apart from you and they're fighting or they're, uh, you know, they're bickering with one another or something's going on. And so when you're in the other room as a parent, you yell... You send your word to them, in a sense, saying, you know, these incredible, uh, wise sayings of parents, you know, share your toys, stop fighting. But really, in a way, you don't want to have to come in there personally. You want to be able to just say, share, you know, quit fighting, you know, those kind of things, and, and just say, just send your word, and they'll do it. But seldom does that really work, because before long, they're back at it again, and you realize you have to, you have to go, and do more than send down your advice. You actually have to go yourself, and you have to mediate, and you have to get between them. Now, I only had the two, and they were four years apart. But I grew up in a family of five. I'm the oldest of five, uh, five children, and you know when you had that many, when you had five kids and we're all in a small house and we're all kind of, you know, fighting over, over whatever, uh, oftentimes parent, the parents had to come, my parents had to come and they had to break up the fights or they had to separate us or do whatever it was. But I, I can remember at times, um, even as a dad or my dad saying, don't make me come down there, you know, or don't make me in the car sometimes. Don't make me stop this car. In a sense, you see, what, what Christmas says is that we are such a mess that it wasn't enough for God to send his word through the prophets. It wasn't enough for God to send his word through teachers or preachers. But he himself had to come into, into the midst of our mess. And he had to come and be here himself. And nothing less, you see, this is what Christmas is saying, nothing less than the very presence of God could, could deal with the darkness. Nothing less than the very presence of God could deal with what is broken in the world's wisdom and in our own personal wisdom. Now, if you think about it, 
the wisdom of God seems like a completely different view of power than the way we or the way the world looks at power. Think about this. Who would advise if you were going to set up uh, the exaltation or you're going to set up the, the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would advise the way that God did it? Here he is born in a manger, you know, in a kind of a filthy sort of a place. Certainly not a place of any luxury or comfort. He's born in an obscure city, not one of the, the big, powerful cities of the world at that time. He spends his entire life outside of all the places of power, and he spends none of his time, really, with the people of power. He's executed very young, 33 years old, and he's executed in total disgrace. This is, this is a total affront, uh, a contradiction to the way the world looks at power, that, that God in Christ would do all of these things so that he could become <laughs> the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It doesn't look like this is the way that any of us would in any way you know, say, uh, yeah, this is the way to become the leader of a movement that's going to sweep the world and become, become the most important person, the most known person in the world. You see, God's wisdom doesn't look anything like worldly wisdom. But what Christmas does is that it shows that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Again, I remind you, Paul grasped this so clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, in, in the beginning of verse 26. Again, you know, the question has to be, have we come to the place where we realize that our wisdom is insufficient, even to fix our own lives, much less to fix all the problems that there are in this world? And Paul says, not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, over the years, I've heard different um, Christmas messages. And oftentimes, I, not all the time, but at times I've been in the presence of someone who was preaching a Christmas message, who did not believe in the virgin birth, who did not believe that the angels arrived, did not believe that Jesus was God, or that the crucifixion or the resurrection had actually happened. And so 
I remember a particular incident where a pastor who was preaching about Christmas, but who didn't believe in the reality of any of the thing of the elements of Christmas, was asked, "Well, why do you have Christmas services? Why do you do you know preach on the Christmas message and all of these things?" And the pastor said, "Well, what I do is is I realize that no you know no." you know, kind of self-respecting person believes any of these things. So what I do is I reinterpret these stories and I find a moral, I find a, an encouraging or an inspiring thought from these stories. Like he says, I like to tell people that God likes to use the little people, that God likes to use the obscure and, and the outsiders. And you think about here he is saying that in his wisdom, he can better speak for God than God's word has spoken for us. Do you know when, when uh, Mary heard that she was going to be a part of the Christmas story when the angel Gabriel came and told her that she was with child, that she who had never been with a man was pregnant, that she would bear the Son of God and that he was the Messiah. Do you know what her reaction, if you go and you look at it, Mary didn't react and go, isn't this inspiring? She didn't go, she didn't go this will be a lovely message for the world. She, she was a teenage girl and she says, what are you talking about this? You know, how can this even be? I have not been with a man. Why? You know, why, what, who? She had a very human reaction and saying, how can this possibly be? And you know what the answer that the Gabriel gave to her, an answer that is important for us today, is he said, nothing is impossible with God. And so you begin to realize if, if, we, if we live our lives I, I, in my own mind, you know, any pastor that says they're reinterpreting the story according to, you know, their own values, I, I look at the arrogance of such a thing. But I'm not talking about just that kind of what feels like, at least to me, very foolish arrogance. But that kind of depending on our own wisdom, the, depending on our own experience and our own education, our own intellect to try to get us through life, then all we have is loose ends that never are made whole. Only when we begin to really yield to the wisdom of God, which is, which is foolishness to the world, but is the wisdom of God in Christ that brings about for us, you know, that we become as righteous as Jesus, that we truly become whole, we become cleansed, and we really experience that our life, even the mistakes of our life, the sins of our life, the, the difficulties of our life, God alone can redeem our pain. Only he can make our scars beautiful. Only he can give worth or value to that which has been so painful in our lives. And only through his wisdom can that be possible. We have to have a paradigm that shifts away from our own idea because we have this reality 
that nothing is impossible with God. Anything is possible. God himself became human. Christmas shows the foolishness of the wisdom of this world. Now, I heard uh, a pastor talk on this, and I thought this was an important distinction. There's a very real difference between worldly learning and worldly wisdom uh, to, to both love art, to love philosophy, to love science, and, and to learn as much as you can is to your benefit. But that's not the same as being seduced or being uh, in some ways twisted by worldly wisdom. Now, quickly, I'd like to say that he, he, there are three things that worldly wisdom can never give you. Number one, worldly wisdom cannot give you the ability to face death with any real confidence, with any sense of assurance. And it definitely cannot have you have a sense of of real joy in facing your own death or facing the death of loved ones. Secondly, it worldly wisdom really does nothing with your past. It cannot and does not in any way truly cleanse your conscience. There, there is no tying up of loose ends in worldly wisdom. And without Christ, without the cross, even though people talk about forgiveness, there's no legal ground for forgiving anybody, but there is especially no legal ground for forgiving yourself. And so worldly wisdom cannot give you the ability to face death, it cannot deal with your past, and it cannot give you a true forgiveness. Only the wisdom of God, only the finished work of Christ. You know, what's interesting as I travel around the world is there is a there is a, a hunger for the word of God. There's a hunger for the wisdom of God. There's a hunger for prayer. I've been in places where people sacrificed everything just to have a few days of teaching on the word of God and on prayer. I'm telling you, this wisdom of God is 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 advancing in a way like never before. He's a wonderful counselor. Well, if we believe these things, it will really make a difference in our lives. Anxiety, anger, stress, worrying about all kinds of worldly cares. If we start to really understand that the one in our life is this wonderful counselor, he's the wisdom of God. Now, I agree with others that I've studied that says the key to dealing with our anxiety, the key to dealing with our anger and our stress and all of this is this word wonder. The, the idea of wonder in the scripture is really the goal. It's the goal of every believer. And it's the idea of, of involuntary or instinctive praise. That we have to come to a place, if we're going to really be changed, and we have to come to the place where we understand the importance of praise. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who's a great theolo American theologian, said that he saw the difference between a truly born-again Christian and just a religious person. He says it was, it was this involuntary praise. You see, because wonder is not about how useful God is to you. 
But it's about how beautiful God is to you. It's about how real God is to you. You praise him for his beauty. You praise him for his glory. You praise him for who he is. Now, as I come to the close of this, I, I, I like the way that C.S. Lewis approaches things. And as a, a, a scholar and as, as somebody who was studying, he, he struggled, he said, with the idea that God demands our praise or that he commands us to give him glory. And then he began to realize he was really misunderstanding the very nature of wonder or the nature of praise. And here's what he wrote. He says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment, giving approval or giving honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. In other words, what he's saying is when you've experienced something wonderful, when you've experienced something it could be unexpected or it could be greater than you expected it to be, you can't help but have that experience express itself in praise, whether it's a sunset or a, a sports exciting moment, it has to elicit praise. The world rings with praise, he says. Lovers praise those that they love. Readers praise the ones they're reading. Walkers are praising how beautiful the countryside is. People who play sports praise the game. And so, you know, we praise, he says, we praise everything, weather, dishes, actors, motors, horses. He goes on and talks. He said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise the most, while the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents praise the least. In some ways, he said, the enjoyment of anything is not complete until you find someone to praise to share your praise of that experience. And did you see that? Did you don't you think that's wonderful? Don't you think that's beautiful? It's it it's not complete until someone else joins you in the wonder. And so what God is is doing is he's he's giving us the experience of his beauty, of his glory, of his wisdom. And, and, and the fullness of that is that then we involuntarily react, we instinctively react in praise. As we see the goodness of the gospel, as we see how God, who is holy, has made sinners righteous, and what it cost him to do that, and we begin to weight that above all other things in our life, we have to praise him and we have to find other people who will praise him with us. But I think there's a valuable truth here. If you are healthy, you praise. And the heart that is healthy praises, but also the heart that is growing more healthy and experiencing greater inner health is actually praising more. But also the ones who are critical and the ones who are cranky and those who are malcontents it's a reflection of the loose ends never being made whole, 
of a lack of shalom, a lack of peace. Now, one of the, the last things that Lewis talks about, and I found this very helpful, is that God has always lived in joy. The Father praises the Son, the Son, the Father. The Holy Spirit is the personalized expression of the love of the Father and the Son being poured out upon us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He has lived in this enjoyment and in this delight so that when he says, praise me, he's basically not saying, hey, I want compliments. I'm greedy for you know you to say nice things about me. Rather, he's saying, I'm inviting you. The joy and the peace and the glory that the Godhead has experienced for all eternity, he's inviting you as you are filled with wonder, as you're filled with praise, he's inviting you to enjoy that same atmosphere that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy every single day for all eternity. You're being invited into the circle of joy and to enjoy it yourself. One of the great lines from a confession of faith that was written in the 1600s is that our chief end, in other words, what, what gives us meaning and purpose is to glorify God. But then it says, and to enjoy him forever. And John Piper changes it a little bit. He says to glorify God by enjoying him forever. See, when you are praising God, you're, you are learning to delight in what God delights in. You're learning to live in wonder. And here's the thing. The heart that lives in that wonder gets healed. The loose ends get tied up. The flourishing that you are made for becomes a reality because you're tapping into those resources. When he commands us to praise, he's inviting us into his joy, his shalom. So what we're asking is that this week, that you would learn to discipline and understand the power of praise to bring healing to your heart, and that the healed heart praises. So take 15 minutes, sometime this week, meditate on these four descriptors. Even if for now you are, in, in a way, you are voluntarily saying, I'm going to discipline myself to praise. If you'll start meditating on these four names and characteristics of Jesus, what you'll find is it'll move from discipline to an involuntary praise because you will experience the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ and the true wonder of Christmas. Fifteen minutes, no less, on the four different names here. In Jesus' name, amen.